I'd like to thank everybody for coming uh, to the uh, Joe Cruzel Memorial Lecture. For those of you who didn't know Joe, uh, Joe was the associate director here uh, for uh, about seven years. He was at the center for 10. He was an associate professor in political science and came here uh, after a uh, career at Duke and before that in the uh, Air Force. And he was a graduate of the Air Force Academy and did his PhD at Harvard. Uh, Joe went into the government when he left uh, Ohio State as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, worked on uh, South Europe and the Balkans in particular, and died uh, in uh, just outside Sarajevo in 1995. <clears throat> and when I became director of the center two years ago, I sort of decided I'd really like to do something. Joe was a friend of mine, and I wanted to dedicate uh, one lecture a year really something uh, special. And Joe's interests were in military affairs, and he worked hard to make this center lean and think about uh, military issues in the academy, which was, of course, the main wish of Ralph Mershon, who endowed the center uh, at the beginning. And so I've decided that every year this Ralph, I mean, the uh, Joe Cruzel Memorial Lecture should really concentrate on someone who's made a big contribution in military affairs um, in a global context. I was talking to Gail Krusel, uh 10 days ago or so on the phone, Joe's uh, wife, about who we might uh, invite. And I had mentioned to her I'd already invited uh, Walter Slocum. <laughs> so, uh, she said, well, Walter Slocum is the perfect person. If I had to have picked one person, she said, he's the one. Uh, when Joe left here, he had some reservations about leaving the academy and going into the government. And Gail reports that it was really Walter Slocum who persuaded him uh, to come to the Defense Department and work in the Clinton administration. Joe had met uh, Walter Slocum earlier when they had served together on the SALT One uh, delegations dealing with strategic arms uh, way back when, when we used to worry about uh, strategic arms limitation talks in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, Walter Slocum uh, <clears throat> had uh, since, since then been Undersecretary of Defense for Policy for much of the Clinton administration in the uh, Department of Defense. He has a distinguished career in the Defense Department, which I know you can all read about because we've put it here so I won't go on at great length. He was a good friend of Joe's, and I know through Gail that Joe thought very highly of him. After the war, in the midst of the war in Iraq, President uh, Bush and Secretary Rumsfeld, who Walt told me earlier he had worked for in a previous uh, position, asked him to go to Iraq and help uh, Paul Bremer and the rest of the provisional authority create an army and a security force for Iraq. And he tells me he arrived a day or two after Bremer uh, arrived in Baghdad and then spent six or seven months in Iraq uh, creating or trying to create the beginning of an Iraqi army and Iraqi security force. And I can't imagine any more timely person to be with us today, given what's happening in Iraq now, and Walter Slocum. So I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Walter Slocum. Welcome to Mershon. Thank you very much, and, and uh, thank you all for coming for this work. Um, it's a real honor to be asked to come here uh, to inaugurate the uh, Joe Cruzel Memorial Lectures and to honor his memory. But for me, it also is, uh, evokes sadness because Joe was a friend and a colleague. Uh, and scarcely a day goes by that I don't remember and think of him 
not just for the terrible day that we, we learned of his death. He was uh, with two colleagues, uh, Ambassador Bob Fraser and Air Force Colonel Nelson Drew, when the APC in which they were riding fell off, a, literally fell off a cliff and rolled down, and uh, they and one of the French drivers was killed. Um, but it, but I try at least not to remember that, that terrible day, but the pleasure of working with him for most of my professional life, of Joe's dedication and his humor and his spirit. Joe died seeking peace in Bosnia. He dedicated his career both in the military, he was a graduate of the Air Force Academy, uh, and as a civilian and both as a scholar and as a government official to the quest for peace and security for this country and for the world. Now, I think we now face a similar crisis, a similar quest in Iraq. Uh, as the introduction mentioned, I was, a, it was, I was in Iraq for six months as a senior advisor for national security and defense to Ambassador Bremer and the Coalition Provisional Authority. I want to begin by saying it was a, it was a great privilege to work with the brave and dedicated men and women, military and civilians, Americans, Iraqis, people from some 30 other coalition countries. Several of the people I met and worked with there have, like Joe, paid the ultimate sacrifice. Others have suffered wounds that will scar them for life. All worked under difficult and dangerous conditions and all depended <coughs> on the support and understanding of the families, friends, and colleagues at home. So it seems to me very appropriate that in remembering and honoring Joe, I should speak today of the challenges that face Iraq and the prospects for the future. I should emphasize that happily since right after coming back in November, I'm again, again a private citizen and I speak only for myself and not for CPA or for the U.S. government. The war is going to remain controversial for a long time. Uh, but the practical issue that we all as Americans and Iraqis and other, other countries in the world face is not whether the war was right uh, or much less the quality or subtlety of American planning or diplomacy or leadership since the major fighting ended a year ago and before. But the issue, the practical issue, is how we meet the challenges of converting the opportunities that the war created into the reality of a secure and stable Iraq. The stakes are very high. Of course, obviously they're most high for the Iraqi people because the success offers for them a decent life under a system of ordered government that respects both majority rule and minority rights and that offers Iraqis personal security and personal liberty in a nation and a region that seem too little of either. But success is important for Americans and for other countries as well because it means for the region that is a, a major tinderbox, an Iraq that's a force for stability and peace and an example of successful reform in an Islamic and Arab nation. Conversely, failure would mean a risk of civil war, another authoritarian regime with the potential to destabilize the region and acquire weapons of mass destruction, and in general a huge setback for the nations of coalition and the world and hopes for peace in the region. 
To succeed in the national reconstruction that's needed for recovery in Iraq, the Iraqis, with the support of the coalition, other members of the international community and international organizations, notably the United Nations, must accomplish four different but related tasks. The first is to build basic services. The second is to build the economy. The third is to set up a government that's both representative and legitimate. And finally, the fourth is to establish the level of security that's necessary for the other goals to be achievable. It's on security narrowly defined as the maintenance of order and the suppression of violent attacks that I want to concentrate because that's what I worked on mostly. But I want to begin by making the core point that progress on the other goals is equally essential, not just for their own sake, but for security as well. And in that area, I think it's people don't recognize how much has already been accomplished. With respect to basic services, and by this I mean things like electricity, water, fuel supply, transportation, communications, but also services like health care and education. These are for the most part at or above pre-war levels. And a start is actually being made on making up for decades of Saddam era underinvestment and for lack of capacity. The problem of reconstruction of the infrastructure is not one of making up for war damage. There was very, very little of that. But of making up for decades of underinvestment. Three quarters, you've all undoubtedly heard about the $87 billion that was appropriated for the coming year in Iraq. The great majority of that $60 billion is the direct cost of the military operation. Of the $18 billion, which is for reconstruction, about three quarters is for infrastructure projects. That will pay for about a quarter, about a third of the total estimated bill. The rest will come from, I believe, the necessity for some continued U.S. additional funding from quite substantial pledges made by other, inter other international donors. And in a few years, there's every reason to believe that Iraq will be able to increase its oil production to the point where it will be able to finance the balance itself. The, this development of the infrastructure is absolutely essential for, for success. The second area, and I believe the key to the, to the problem, is the political process. And there's no question that it's difficult. Uh, Iraq is a divided nation with only rudimentary political institutions, and that makes reaching compromises very difficult in the face of leaving aside the violent opposition in the face of maximalist demands from extremists of various descriptions. And the, and the immediate task is to agree on the structure for the provisional government, which will take over on, on July 1st. The UN role in brokering an agreement on that should, I think, facilitate compromises because I believe it will make it easier for the Iraqis to agree on the compromises which will be necessary if they can do it in a UN context rather than if they were if the process continued to be managed largely by the coalition and even more than as if they actually had to reach agreement among themselves rather than have somebody else they could blame for the necessity to get less than less than their maximum demands. The events of the last two days or ten days or so have certainly underscored that the process has real enemies uh, who are prepared to use terrorist methods to hijack 
the effort. And the test of any political agreement is obviously how it's implemented and how well it's observed, and whether in the constitutional context, whether it really does create a framework, not just the words on paper. But some real progress has been made. The, the agreement on the interim constitution is a very important step forward. Uh, there's every reason to believe that Brahimi for the UN has succeeded or will succeed in brokering a deal for the coming, for the immediate transition. And there's also hope in the Iraqi political structure itself. Um, there's an unprecedented degree of political and press freedom and the beginning of an emergence of a civil society of political institutions. Um, and it, so it holds the prospect of Iraq developing a system of law-based federalism and representative government that will allow the diverse elements in the country uh, to live together and to build a society. The third area is economic development, and, and in Iraq, as in all countries, a successful economy is essential, not just because it's essential for people to have a decent life, but it's essential as the underpinning for this very far-reaching democratic exper experiment that the Iraqis, not just the Americans, that the Iraqis want to have happen. And it faces an obstacle which is inherent in Saddam's creation of a truly Stalinist system. He didn't just have a Stalinist system in the sense of a one-party monopoly of power and a cult of personality and a system of state control of politics. He also had a Stalinist economy in the sense of these massive inefficient state-owned enterprises and a system of state control, what one might call centralism tempered by corruption. And what that has done is to leave a legacy of an uncompetitive state-owned industrial sector, a baroquely complicated patchwork of very expensive and highly discriminatory subsidies, a very high level of unemployment, a very high level of dependence on the state for basic necessities, and a culture of, of corruption and, and nepotism and favoritism. So Iraq has, has a serious economic problem. On the other hand, in contrast to countries where this kind of reconstruction is also necessary, like Bosnia or Kosovo or East Timor or Sierra Leone or Afghanistan, Iraq not only has a, a cash crop in the form of oil, but it has abundant water, fertile land. I was amazed to learn that about a quarter of the land, that we, we think of Iraq as basically desert, uh, about a quarter of the land is actually arable. Uh, roughly half of that, that is an eighth of the total by natural water, and the other eighth by irrigation. And one of the things which has happened in the last year is a very substantial reconstruction of the irrigation system, which Saddam, partly for political reasons, which Saddam let deteriorate or caused to deteriorate, partly for political reasons to, uh, and partly also because of the, of the oil for food program made it unnecessary to foster domestic agricultural production. Moreover, uh, Iraq has a relatively well-educated and sophisticated and enterprising population. And indeed, the, even the infrastructure is comparatively advanced, even though it's badly dilapidated. Um, Starting immediately after the fall of Saddam about a year ago, there's been a vibrant retail sector which has grown up in the country. 
basic living standards had been sustained by expensive but socially critical food distribution and income subsidies, and a beginning has been made on basic structural and legal reform that will allow enterprises to take off. But the new Iraq and its government at some point are going to have to face the challenge of dismantling the state-controlled economy if Iraq is to succeed economically, and it cannot succeed simply on oil revenues alone. The oil revenues give it an advantage, but they do not, in contrast to some of the Gulf countries, make it possible basically to, to live on the rent. Also, I also want to make the point that Iraq has a, a human resource that I think we sometimes discount. One of Both public opinion polling and anecdotal reports from people you talk to show that on the whole, and with obvious important exceptions, the Iraqi people believe that for all the difficulties of the past year and all the internal rivalries and all of the inevitable resentments of a foreign occupation, the ouster of Saddam and his regime was very much for the best. And perhaps most important, there is a very widespread belief that the future of Iraq is a bright one. Actually, remarkable as it may sound, more Iraqis as a percentage than Americans believe their life will be better in five years than it is today. And that sense of optimism, that sense of hope about the future, is a huge resource for moving forward. <coughs> Keeping the momentum going and, and correcting the places where there have been failures, however, is going to have to require improvements in security. Uh, that the that the security situation in Iraq today is unacceptable cannot plausibly be doubted. Muqtadar al-Sadr and the butchers who, who mutilated the four American contractors at Fallujah, however, do not represent anything like a majority of either Shia or Sunni opinion. And there is evidence that more moderate forces in both communities are coming to see that this sort of attacks are attacks not primarily on Americans and other foreigners, but on the chance of a decent new Iraq. But the awkward fact is that even narrowly based but well-organized violence by extremists can disrupt the process and, and could have the effect of turning the general population, not just against the occupation, but against the prospects of political compromise and the establishment of a law-based society. Understandably, in this country and, and outside, casualties to American and other foreign military personnel, international aid workers, contractors, and so on, generate the most interest and the most concern. But from the point of view of the prospect of success, I think the critical vulnerability is attacks on Iraqis who cooperate with the coalition and are working to build a new Iraq, and the possibility that sectarian tensions in Iraq can be, can be forced to spiral into a civil war. Uh, the issue, I think, ultimately, is whether the forces opposed to success can manage not so much to drive out the coalition as to stop Iraqis from working together and working with the coalition for progress. So far, that is not happening. The individual incidents of violence, whether it's ambushes of coalition soldiers, a killing and, and kidnapping of civilian workers, mass murder of Shias gathered at religious centers, um, or the efforts of the extremist Shia leader Muqtadar al-Sadr to establish control in, in Shia religious centers, 
All this is, is very real, and it's a very real problem. But it's not the whole story. Uh, it's very much, I think, too soon to write, far too soon, to write off the Iraqi experiment on security grounds. Overall, based on my experience when I was there and what I've heard from people who are there still and people who've come back since me, the overall security situation in Iraq is much less desperate than most of the media imply. Iraq, even inside the Sunni Triangle, even in the, in the most dangerous areas, has not been a nation in chaos since Saddam fell. Since soon after that, normal life has been reviving in Iraq. You go out at night, the streets and the stores are full of people. Basic services are up. Uh, schools and universities are open. Crime is down. Unemployment is reduced. The currency is stable, indeed, like most currencies in the world, actually appreciating against the dollar. Uh, and civil society is beginning to function. Of course, in times of high tension, like the last few days, people in the affected areas react by curtailing normal activities. But the pattern, which seems to be repeating again, is for relatively rapid return to more normal life. All that said, obviously, a lot yet has to be done. In the short term, which may well extend for several years into the future, foreign military and other security services are going to retain a significant internal security role. But the critical task is to build Iraqi capacity. And that's a goal of most Iraqis every, much as it, every bit as much as it is of the coalition. Doing that will require that Iraq have competent police, intelligence services, border patrols, and other security organs, as well as, mil local, as, milita as well as military forces and local paramilitary reserves. In, in <clears throat> but to get there will require that there be what technical people in this field call security sector reform and security sector reform on a grand scale. In needing such reform, Iraq is far from unique. If you look at the world over the past 20 years, a surprising number of nations that have cast off old authoritarian regimes have also been forced to create new or at least fundamentally restructured security institutions, not just the obvious case of the former Soviet empire, but in places as different as South Africa, Latin America, the Balkans, East Timor, and even relatively developed countries like Taiwan and South Korea. But Iraq faces a special misfortune. In contrast to almost every other case, except arguably Afghanistan, Iraq must accomplish this security sector reform under conditions of active direct attack. In a sense, it has to do its security sector reform under fire. That is, in conditions of daily violence and well-supported skilled campaigns to undermine security. Iraq's new security institutions are going to have to be both immediately effective and permanently democratic and law-abiding, and that's not an easy combination. The, the problem is made more complicated by the fact that there are various threat groups. The first is what I call the returnists, because that's what they call, that's what the Ba'ath Party holdouts call one of their front organizations, the Party of the Return, who, who literally want to bring back the power of the Ba'athist elite. The second are Sunni extremist groups like Ansar al-Islam, which espouse a brand of extreme Sunni nationalism. The third are the Shia extremists, typified by Muqtadr al-Sadr. And then there are external terrorists, 
I guess I demonstrate that I'm not speaking for the administration when I say there is some tendency, I believe, to overstate the degree to which the problem in Iraq is essentially, to a significant degree, a problem of foreign terrorists coming into the country. They're certainly there, and they are a problem. But to some degree, for both people outside, and also to some degree for Iraqis, it is a convenient rationalization to say, oh, this problem is due to... to I'm, I'm old enough to remember in the civil rights era when there was a, a fashion in the South to say all the problems were due to outside agitators. And there's a certain analogy to that. Even taken together, all these groups are small in number. And in contrast, say, to the Viet Cong in Vietnam or the PLO, they do not have the support of the majority of the local population. Yet, as we know about terrorist organizations, small numbers can be very dangerous. And they also share some important characteristics. Tactically, they, will use te they do use terrorist methods. They're prepared to cooperate across ideological lines. And even those with the strongest local roots take advantage of porous borders and outside financial and physical havens. And critically, if they succeeded, all of them would, be, would establish regimes that would not respect basic human rights, individual or collective, or pursue a peaceful foreign policy for Iraq. Corresponding to the complexity of the challenge, there have to be many different parts to the response to create better intelligence, including better, intelli better Iraqi-based intelligence, to continue effective coalition military operations, bearing in mind that if aggressive military operations are not informed by precise intelligence, they run a risk of simply further alienating the local population without commensurate security gains. But central to the effort is building Iraqi institutions. There are some short-term things like the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, but the core of the, of the mission has to be to prepare highly trained, well-equipped, professional, politically neutral police and military forces. And that, that process is ongoing. But it will take time. You do not create excellent police who have a very difficult job to do overnight. You do not create a first-class army able to deal with internal security problems as well as external defense overnight. And there will be pressures from both some Iraqis and some Americans to cut corners to meet the schedule, by, either by compromising on standards, or as I, which I think has happened in some areas, or, as may have happened recently, to imagine that Iraqi units can take over difficult missions before they're really ready. The security forces are growing uh, in capability and responsibility as well as numbers. Ordinary crime rates, at least as reported, are, are down substantially. Um, that's largely due to improved police work. Almost all routine guard duties are now being performed by Iraqis. When I, when I arrived in Baghdad almost a year ago, banks and schools and bridges and so on were being guarded by American troops. That now is done by Iraqis. The Iraqis check the ID of people coming in to collect their pensions and guard the, guard the pension office, that sort of thing. Moreover, the initial high-end professional national police and army units are coming online. But there have been enough incidents of serious failures to underscore that this is all going to take time. 
and that getting it right will require that we and the Iraqis remain willing to pay the costs in money, time, and complications and continued external commitment to security to create the properly trained, fully equipped, and most important, effectively led military and police forces that are critical to transferring eventually full responsibility for internal security to the Iraqis. And the challenge of creating these security institutions goes beyond simply creating competent entities. Because in the long run, we have to make sure, and the Iraqis have to make sure, that these organizations will serve the governmental order um, and be res responsive to legal res restrictions, respect the rights of the Iraqi people. And this means in, in the context of the armed forces in Iraq, and, and I think we are doing this, that the forces have to be national in character, that is reasonably representative of the country as a whole, and not as in the past dominated, in the case of the army by Sunnis, in the officer corps. They have to be under effective constitutional control, under civilian control, in a culture which as long ago as the 30s invented the Arab military coup. And they have to be respectful of human rights, both in their internal operations and on how they carry out their missions. Core, at the core of this is fundamentally reoriented leadership. Correcting long-established dysfunctional patterns requires not just vetting so that you exclude police and military commanders who are hopelessly compromised by the old regime, but also moving to a new ethos of how you maintain discipline and integrity and how you lead security organizations that are going to have to go out and do difficult and dangerous things. The old system was, was characterized by a mixture of brutality, passivity, politicization, and corruption. And those characteristics are not entirely unknown in, other, in the security services of other countries in the region, although they existed in, in an extreme form in Iraq. That won't be easy. But there are a large number of Iraqi security personnel, some veterans from the old institution, some new to the field, who have volunteered to accept not only the risk, the personal physical risk that goes along with participating in these institutions, but in some ways perhaps even more difficult to accept the idea that you're going to do things in a fundamentally new and different way. Of course, it's also important that there be this, this legal and constitutional structure to ensure civilian control, to ensure accountability, both public and parliamentary, and to ensure that Iraq does not again threaten its neighbors. The idea, this is going to be tough. The ideal of a professional, non-corrupt, law-abiding, politically and ethnically neutral security service has proved hard to achieve in environments that are a lot less difficult than contemporary to Iraq. But I think the process is, is well started. For one thing, the experience of decades of oppression by security services has made all the various groups and many in the leadership of these new organizations themselves fully conscious of the need for a whole new approach. And importantly, the interim constitution provides in addition to the structural provisions and the human rights provisions, it provides the outline of a basic structure for civilian control, legal constraints, parliamentary and public accountability, 
and cooperation with coalition efforts. I want to leave time for questions, so let me just briefly summarize where I think where I think we're going. We are clearly now at a moment of serious challenge, both to coalition authority and to the prospects for Iraqi agreement on urgent political issues. This latest, in some respects, the most serious upsurge in violence illustrates that the potential for failure does exist. But it is far too early to assume that disaster or even an endless quagmire is inevitable. My impression from my time in Iraq and my more peripheral involvement since returning in November remains that for all the great uncertainties and risks, the prospect is essentially hopeful. The fall of Saddam has been deeply welcomed, even by most Sunnis and all but universally by all the other groups in the country. And there is genuine gratitude to the United States and the other coalition countries for liberation. And despite their internal differences and their impatience with the occupation, the overwhelming majority of Iraqis uh, want to have the, uh, realize that they have the opportunity, and it may prove a fleeting opportunity, to create a decent government for their nation. And moreover, they recognize, however reluctantly, however grudgingly, that continued coalition efforts are needed to maintain and improve security as well as to build the economy and, and the infrastructure and so on. Overall, this is a struggle that can and must be won. The enemy's goals are political and not military. They are to intimidate the Iraqis who seek change, to destroy the, popula the population's confidence in the competence of the new Iraqi authorities and in the prospect for reform, to aggravate internal tensions to the point of civil war, and to exhaust the patience of American and other external supporters of the process. Accordingly, the key requirement is resolve, to bear the costs in money, in patience, in political and military effort, and most painfully in human life, necessary to overcome the forces that seek to prevent success. Iraqis will have to bear the main burden that the international community, including the United States, has a critical contribution to make, and I think it is fundamentally important to the success of our foreign policy and the kind of world we want that we continue to make it. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions.